So in tonight's, <clears throat> tonight's talk, I chose the topic, William James, Jeffrey Kripal, and the secret history of paranormal experience. And last month when I was here, I spoke about William James, Evelyn Underhill, uh, and mysticism. So we're kind of on a William James streak for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. Mysticism that we spoke to last month is the spiritual pursuit of a reality deeper than the common superficial reality. So in any spiritual tradition where there's a pursuit for direct first-hand experience of that which lies beyond the obvious, you, you could broadly call that mysticism. And most, most of the world's religions will have their mystical schools. In, you know, the non-mystical aspects of a religion are going to have more to do with there being certain dictates that are followed as rules to live by, uh, and not necessarily with some kind of direct, uh, uh, intentional pursuit of direct experience of the reality that those rules are supposed to be in accordance with. Uh, so we're moving from mysticism this month to the paranormal which is, in many ways, one step further in the direction of strangeness. Uh, so mystical experiences, in terms of mainstream and mystical pursuits, are usually considered pretty far out. Uh, but paranormal experiences and paranormal pursuits are a little bit further out than that. And before we go any further, I just want to make sure we have some common understanding of what the paranormal is, uh, at, least, at least one that we can all accept for the purposes of this evening. Uh, generally, paranormal experiences, you know, you could say, fall in the category of unexplained phenomena, unexplained human capacities, uh, unexplained observed phenomena, things that just don't fit in what we consider normal. So, just to get the ball rolling, who would be willing to, to, maybe you could raise your hand, give me an example of something paranormal. Uh, it doesn't have to be something you've experienced, but just something that you are aware of that fits in the category of paranormal. Ghosts definitely falls in the category of the paranormal. So, th so th things like ESP, extrasensory perception, clairaudience, clairvoyance, telepathy, telekinesis, you know, the ability to move things with your mind, the ability to uh, hear things that you shouldn't be able to hear, see things that you shouldn't be able to hear, remote viewing, which was, a, you know, explored by the, by the U.S. Army in the 60s. I actually, you know, have met a couple of people who were part of those experiments. So they would be in a room in California, and they would be envisioning a potential bomb target in another country and trying to get imprints. And they were having some success with this. Not enough to continue it, obviously, because they stopped. But there are some weird things were definitely happening. So there's that kind of ESP. And then, and then Neil, who's online, uh, added ghosts. So uh, you know, any kind of ghosts or spirits. Added UFOs. Donna added UFOs. That's, that's another good paranormal uh, experience is the seeing UFOs, being abducted by UFOs, etc., falls in that general category. 
Levitating, yeah, sure, uh, any kinds of those sorts of powers. So those are the, um, that would be the general category of the paranormal. So now that you have a little bit of a sense of what we're talking about, I would like you to think of yourself on a scale of 1 to 10. And a 10, you'd be like a paranormal 10, is a person who has absolutely no doubt about the reality of all of these things, either from firsthand experience or from, from what, for whatever reason, is doubtless about the reality and existence of all of those things. And a one is someone who is equally doubtless about the absurdity of all of those things and, and the impossibility that any of them could possibly exist. So, so those are the extremes. 10, they all absolutely exist. One, none of them could possibly exist. And then you have to put yourself somewhere in that scale from, I'm assuming no one will be a 1 and no one will be a 10 because you know, those are the extremes. But there may be a few 2s or a few 9s in the room. So just think of yourself on that scale. So then this gets interesting to me um, because... I've, I've had this kind of conversation with myself a little bit, you know, because there's some things that I believe are possible, that I do honestly believe are possible. Like, I honestly do believe there are, there are very likely to be extraterrestrials, you know, in existence. I, I've had a belief, you know, it just, it just seems logical to me that there would be. And yet I notice I don't spend any time pursuing them at all. You know, and you would think, like, if one landed, I'd probably really want to spend some time, because then I'd really know it was true, and I would think it was really important. Uh, but I noticed that even though I'm kind of on the believing half, uh, I don't give a lot of my attention to them. And that goes with a lot of these other possibilities, that I, I do consider myself on the believing half, but they're not that real to me. I don't pursue them with much vigor. And when I meet people, okay, so this is another question. How many of you have met someone who really fits in the total believer scale and found it very hard to relate to them? You know, so you meet someone and you're like, for a few minutes you're, you're going along, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, that's great for you. Because <laughs> you know? if someone takes it too seriously, I start to lose interest. So... Just keeping in mind those attitudes will help as we uh, go through what I want to share with you today. And of course, what happens when, when you start to get into a situation with someone and they're making you uncomfortable with their level of true belief, you start to feel like, oh, they're a little bit crazy. This, this person's crazy. And what does crazy mean? It means they don't live in reality. This is someone who's outside of reality. So I'm in reality, believing that I believe in these things, but firmly in reality. This person has left reality, and they're in something that's starting to strike me as crazy. And then again, interesting to think about it, I've had a lot of experience, or some experience, with people like that because of places I've spent time in. And so one such example is I met someone who claimed he was at a book show selling his book. He claimed that he was a Pleiadian, or I think that's what they call it. He came from the Pleiades. And he, had, he didn't have any photographs, but he had 
diagrams of the ship that he came in on and, and included all kinds of cutaways, very intricately detailed, this big, vast starship that it brought. He knew how many people had come, and he knew you know, why they had come. And you know, he had a whole book. And I spent about two hours with him at this trade show. Um, and I was definitely having that feeling, oh, this guy's really out of it. You know, he's, he's gone too far. But I kept asking myself, if it was true, would he sound different than this? I mean, if this, was, if this was actually, so I'm kind of with my judgment thinking he's kind of crazy and he's gone too far into this world and now he can't get out. But I thought, well, if, it, if he's not crazy and he's just actually being honest, would he sound different? Would I recognize that? Would I somehow be able to recognize that this was an authentic case? Another example is I knew a guy who, I met him a few times. He was a spiritual teacher. He had a community in Denver. And I, I read a number of his books, and I thought he was quite an interesting teacher. I really appreciated his writing. It was very uh, clear and powerful. And he had a community of about 30 students. And they seemed pretty remarkable. I mean, they were very, they felt very developed, open, compassionate, intelligent, you know, just the kind of people you want to be with. So you think, OK, there's something, you know, nothing weird about them at all. And then as I got to know him over a couple of years, again, traveling to the various shows I used to do at one time, uh, I started to realize that his whole teaching was coming to him from beings from another planet who were trying to intervene in the development of humans because in a sh fairly short period of time, uh, he never told me how long, there was going to be uh, a contact made between this other race and ours. And they were afraid that if they made contact before we were ready, then they would have too dominant inf an influence over our consciousness. And so they were trying to get us strong enough in our own consciousness to be able to withstand the contact. And I talked to him for a long time about that. And he you know, again, gave me quite a bit of detail about who these people were and how he first got into contact with them and how he continued to be in contact with them. And I really liked him, and, and yet he was kind of going further than I could go with him. Uh, and I was thinking pragmatically. We were both, at the time, working in publishing. And I said, you know, this whole backstory about the fact that your teaching is coming from these beings from another planet, it's not a great selling point you know, beyond a certain audience. And your teachings are really powerful and valuable. And clearly, the people that are reading them are finding them such. So wouldn't it just be better to just skip the backstory and, and just give the teaching? And then that that wouldn't, that nobody would get scared away. So I thought I was giving him some really helpful advice. And uh, he answered me in this very interesting way. He, he just looked right at me. And you know, I knew him a little bit. And he said, well, I could do that. But in order to do that, I would have to lie. And I don't want to. And I just stopped. I was like, OK, you know, what are you going to you know?" I mean, he, there was nothing about what he said that made me think anything except that he was telling the truth, that that was what was, what was happening. And he wasn't going to lie about it just to sell more books. And that was just another moment where I I, was, I became, in both of those moments, what I was aware of was my own 
bias away from the paranormal. That I can go so far with it, but then I get to a certain point and I, I have to kind of dismiss it. And I thought, well, that's interesting, especially for someone like me who, you know, spent, I spent my life living in a spiritual community, kind of living so far outside of the mainstream that hardly anybody could relate to me. Uh, and yet, I still had my limits, you know? And that's really kind of funny. <laughs> Most people thought I was really way too far out, and then, but, you know, there I was with my hand over here. Um, so I've, I've been kind of curious about that whole phenomena. And then tonight I'm going to talk to you about William James, who's one of my favorite historical characters, uh, great philosopher, and Jeffrey Kripal, who is a, a current professor at Rice University, uh, someone I've, I've only met by phone a few times, but I feel, you know, I feel very a kindred with him. And I like to talk about his work because I don't think it's, it's all that well known. And I think it's really, uh, it's really valuable. And both James and Kripal are academic philosophers who work in the domain of the paranormal. And they do it under similar auspices and, and with a similar conviction. To show you the books I brought for you. Uh, this one's called Ghost Hunters. So Neil, who said ghosts, uh, definitely fits. It's William James in the Search for Scientific Proof of Life After Death. And I'll tell you a little bit about this book as the evening progresses. I brought four books. Two of them I have only skimmed briefly, and two I've read. This is another one I've read, Authors of the Impossible by Jeffrey Kripal. We'll talk a lot about this tonight. It's a, it's a magnificent book, but not, a, not an easy read necessarily. William James at the Boundaries I recently discovered, which is a more academic book all about William James and uh, how he liked to explore the boundaries of things. And just to say briefly about that, one of the things I loved about James was his justification for always wanting to work on the fringes of everything. And because, because what he said is that everything that we know lies on a bell curve. And the things that we're most certain of are in the middle of the bell curve. Those are the things that we've known the longest, that have been studied the most, and that we're, there's a lot of certainty around. And then as you go off the edges, you get to things that, oh, we don't know that much. And then way out on the edges is stuff we don't really know at all on both sides. And so James's logic was that most of what we're willing to consider real is, is some slice in the middle of that bell curve. That is what we say, okay, this is the stuff we know about. And so the way our, cultural invest, our, our culture tends to investigate things is by pushing the boundaries of the known. So you go to the, the edge of the cylinder, the things that you are really sure about, and, and see if you can extend them more and more and more. So James thought, well, that's really too slow, you know, extending those boundaries. Because there are already a couple of things way out here that we've already experienced that we're not willing to investigate. But the fact that they exist at all already shows us that the boundary must be at least over here. So we should be exploring the furthest out things we can find in order to, to find the true edges of, of what's known. And so that was his logic. And as a philosopher, he was perpetually and continually risking his career by studying things that most people didn't think were worthy of an academic uh, philosopher, and luckily he was the 
president of, I'm not, sorry, not the president, he was the chairperson of philosophy at Harvard. He was an, an international celebrity. He wasn't someone that was going to get fired anytime ever. And so he had the freedom to do whatever he wanted uh, academically. And, and basically he did. And he really did initiate a tradition in America of legitimizing that kind of study. And so when you get to someone like Jeffrey Kripal, I mean, here he is. How do they describe him? He's the J. Newton Razor Professor of Religion at Rice University, right? And he's co-authoring a book with Whitney Strieber, who, uh, if, you don't, if, you know, if you don't know him, he's probably the most famous UFO abductee. He was abducted numerous times and wrote a very famous book called Contact, which became a movie uh, where he was abducted in, I think, a pickup truck. So they co-authored the book, which I, when I first saw it, I thought, whoa, that's pretty, that takes some guts, you know, if you're an academic philosopher. But they did it in kind of an interesting way. They alternate chapters. So Kripal does have the ability to critique some of what comes before so he can maintain an air of objectivity. But I think most of what Kripal writes in here, his philosophy, and things I've talked with him about on the phone, I think are, I can probably give you a pretty good idea of what's in here when we get to it. So here we are. We have these paranormal phenomena that we, uh, those of us in the room are, are going to tend to believe in, but society at large is going to tend not to believe in. This is something that Jeffrey Kripal has thought about a lot. Uh, his book, Authors of the Impossible, is about four individuals, uh, historical individuals, which I won't go into who they are, but they're all people who, in their own way, explored the paranormal to a very profound degree. Uh, I'll just tell you about one. His name is Charles Fort. Um, Charles Fort was uh, an American, early 20th century, and, and basically he's best known because he used to write in these kind of pulp fiction magazines like weird tales and unexplained phenomena that were popular in the 40s and 50s because he was obsessed with paranormal phenomena and the unexplained. He lived in New York City and basically spent, uh, according to Kripo, you know, upwards of eight hours a day just scanning microfiche from, from all of the newspapers in the world that would end up in the, in the library in New York, seeking for any stories about the unexplained, and then categorize. And he had volumes and volumes of all of these unexplained phenomena that were reported in, in newspapers and magazines. And then from them, he started to develop this whole theory about the way reality works and the paranormal, which he wrote into his both nonfiction and also science fiction kinds of works. And the reason Kripal writes about him is, uh, is because, you know, Kripal wants to say, well, here's someone like Charles Fort, who's obviously not an academic, and, you know, has definitely come to some pretty far out conclusions, but spent a lot of time doing legitimate research. And that's basically all the four people that he's talking about are people who, who did a lot of legitimate research on the paranormal and the unexplained. And, and Kripal's question is, in, you know, in our society, there's a story about the paranormal, which is, the story is that there are these weird phenomena that, it, that you know, happen occasionally to a small number of people 
you know, usually strange people in remote, weird environments. And it's not really very credible. And uh, Kripal's point is actually, that's not really true if you look into it. These things are happening a lot. They're happening a lot more than just a little bit to a few weird people. And that's, what, that's part of what the authors of The Impossible are about and part of what Jeffrey Kripal is about. Uh, and then, you know, so what he's, he's saying, and this gets to the title of the talk today, The history of the paranormal is largely unknown. That's why it's a secret. It's there, and if, you, and if you dig in the way that he continually does, you can find there's this whole history of paranormal phenomena that are studied, that are explored by these characters that are not part of the mainstream, that never get any airtime, and so you just don't know about it. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But the, the story that we have in, in our kind of mainstream history would tell us that there's not really that much happening, and most of what's happening is essentially isolated to a, a small number of uh, fairly kooky individuals that don't really deserve to be uh, thought about. And Kripal has a very different story, which is the story of the suppression of paranormal phenomena and, and the suppression of paranormal history. So his story is about how from you know, the inception of, of the Enlightenment and science, the quest for and development of science was more and more successful at improving human life. And, and over time, just became more successful and more successful and more successful. Until by you know, the middle of the 1800s, there were so many earth-shattering scientific discoveries that happened, uh, you know, just complete worldview-changing understanding of electricity and magnetism and biology. It just, it just seemed like every day whole new vistas of possibility were opening up and that soon science was going to basically have everything understood. And because of that, in universities all across the world, but certainly in America, universities were spending more and more money to develop their science departments. And more and more grant money was going to support science departments. Get, getting to a point, I mean, that trend has continued to the point where, you know, in the early 20th century, most of the humanities departments tried to reconfigure themselves as sciences, uh, which is what one of the things that, that Jeffrey Kripal talks about, is how, you know, he's a humanities professor, professor of religion, but he can't really write his, you know, he feels like he can't, in the current academic environment, he can't write his own original thoughts in a book, that that would be laughed at, like if he had his own theory of something. He said what he can do is write about historical people, so what, what, the, what he does in his books is he chooses historical people that hold the same views that he does, and then he writes about them, because that will get, then you can get it published. But if he just wrote the ideas of this devoid of the history, then it wouldn't be publishable. It would just be somebody's ideas, and, and nobody would care. But then he says, and that would make sense if you were one of the sciences. So if some scientist just wanted to write a whole theory of science that had no experimentation and had never been checked, of course it would make sense that that wouldn't really be considered science. But he said, I'm a humanities professor. 
We're supposed to do literature. We're supposed to actually write stories, but we're not allowed to. So we're all trying to become more and more scientific and evidence-based. And if the evidence needs to be history, then that's what we have to do. So th that trend of the sciences garnering you know, most of the grant money and really solidifying a hold on the academy was occurring in the sort of late 1800s, early 1900s, at the same time that there was what is sometimes called the revival of spiritualism, which was a revival of all this interest in these paranormal phenomena, seances, and all this stuff was really popular. This is all around the time of, of William James. And, and this, this book is very fascinating, fun, easy to read. It's essentially about the academic professors who formed uh, the Psychical Research Society which was originally English. And the founder of the uh, Psychical Society is the first person explored in this book by Kripal, Frederick Myers. He was English, and he was the founder of the Psychical Research Society. And they were academics uh, essentially studying psychic phenomena like seances and people who could speak to the dead. And they were kind of debunkers and you know, they would set up scenarios where they would go to seances and they would have like meters to measure stuff and have people hooked up to things and have actually, you know, it's quite funny in the book, there's people hiding in closets, peeking through peek holes to see if anything funny is going on. And, and the reality is that they debunked most of what they saw, that according to their own reports, you know, a fairly large majority of what they saw they they did realize was fake, um, but there was a, a minority that they never were able to debunk. And in William James's lifetime, there was one psychic whose name was Lenora Piper, who he had about a thirty-year relationship with, who was a seer and did these amazing. You know, she would she was used regularly by the police at the time to find bodies, to find missing people, and she had an incredible track record of being right. You know, she'd go into trance, she'd picture where the body was, she'd say it's, you know, it's on this road, the police would take her, she'd go back in, she'd say it's down there. And, and the amount of times that she was able to find bodies uh, and help the police was uncanny, certainly far beyond what could have been possible. And William James was, became a friend of hers. Uh, she did a lot of things for him uh, and saw things about his life and other people lives that he knew. And in 30 years, he said he was never, he never once saw her be inauthentic and never, never once saw her be wrong. And according to him, she, she was really stood out of all the people he had studied uh, as, as exceptional. And, and to him, he thought, well, if there's even one person like this, there should be other scientists interested. This is the thing that, that he felt was so unscientific about it. It's like if this person's here and she's having these capacities and you know, you can, you know, she's perfectly willing to be uh, examined and it's this uncanny, how come nobody's interested? Because you know, to him, there should be 100 scientists wanting to study this because what this means for the possibilities of the world is so extraordinary and yet it, it was ignored. So, he became the president of the American Psychical Research Society, which a lot of his peers just, you know, they just poo-pooed him. Um, but anyway, he was too big, he was too prominent to, to be slowed down. And I think 
you know, there was, I think he was just ongoingly frustrated that no matter what he discovered, it would never gain interest. So Kripal's kind of in the same boat now. I know the last time I talked to him was about a year ago, and uh, someone had read one of his books, and they wrote this scathing review and just basically said that this is, you know, this is just total, you know, this stuff is woo-woo, BS, you know, it's just, there's no, there's no real thinking behind any of this. It shouldn't be read. It shouldn't, this guy shouldn't even be allowed to be an academic. And, of course, Kripal wrote back a kind of uh, defense, and they got into a, a little back and forth in one of the journals. And I happened to, call, I happened to talk to him in the middle of all this because he was telling me about what he was going through. And he was saying, you know, it's very easy in the current academic climate to, to lay the claim of woo-woo on someone. And it automatically means something if you do it. Like, there's a predisposition to assume that if someone's calling someone else woo-woo, then they probably are. He said, you know, I don't, I, I, he was aware that he wasn't really getting the benefit of the doubt. And that there's a certain, in academia, there's a certain climate within which that charge is very easy to levy. So I spoke with Jeffrey about some of my early childhood mystical experiences, and it, that was interesting because I told him about experiences I had when I was very young, when uh, I was maybe four years old, and then a little older when I was about eight. The very young ones I used to have when I would lock myself in my parents' bathroom, and the older one, when I was eight, I used to lock myself in the car. And I told him the story, and, and I, those two facts were included. They didn't seem particularly important to me. When I was done telling him the story, I said, you know what I find fascinating? I said, no. He said, the fact that even when you were four and eight, you knew you needed to lock yourself somewhere to be safe, to have these kinds of experiences. He said, the cultural antibodies to mystical experiences are so strong that you knew even as a young child that you needed to be protected to have them. And then he said, you know, it's another common story uh, that mystical experiences are rare, that they happen infrequently. Uh, to lucky individuals. And his belief is that actually mystical experiences happen all the time. And, and the only reason we don't think we have them is because we're culturally conditioned to dismiss them. And that cultural conditioning is so strong that we dismiss them even before we, rec- even before we're, we cognize that they've happened. So we just feel like we haven't had them. And he believes that if we found a way to shift our culture and relax the implicit ta- taboo against those things, then we would just start to see that people were having mystical experiences all the time. They were having various kinds of experiences uh, beyond what's normal. And in a way, I think that's more or less what his work is devoted to, is, is to try to find a way to relax some of those cultural inhibitors that are uh, keeping everyone locked up in this belief that mystical experiences are rare and paranormal experiences are rare. So I want to say a little bit more about the, the history, and first, the history of science. And I've, I'm sure I've touched about, upon this in other lectures, but we live in a scientific world, a, a scientific paradigm. And part of the scientific paradigm we live in is a belief that science, the science that we know of, is science. Not a type of science, but 
that there's only one science and that's what it is, and, and science is what it is. We're not, you don't go to school and someone says, we're going to teach you about, you know, a particular kind of science. And later we may teach you about a different kind of science. They just teach you about science. We don't even feel the need to qualify it, right? Uh, you just say it's science. And, and well, what if there's two science? There's not two science, there's just science. And science is what we teach you that it is. And in fact, we live in a particular scientific uh, paradigm and a particular way of doing science, which at its inception was at least one of two types of science, which was discovered a little bit later. So, so basically, there was the Newtonian science that we are now call science without realizing that it's a kind of science. And the other competing flavor of science was the science that was conceived of by the German playwright Goethe. Uh, and Goethe had a, a very different conception of science. And, and, and where this battleground took place was in color theory. So Newton came up with a color theory that explained the color wheel that we all know today with the primary colors and the secondary colors. And Goethe simultaneously came up with an explanation for colors and the color wheel and the primary and secondary colors. But they came, at, they, they came to the exact same conclusion from two very different forms of science. And I don't, I can't tell you Goethe's uh, as well, partly because he lost the battle, and so his science was never fully developed. But I can tell you that basically Goethe's science had to do with deep observation, just looking at something so deeply that it starts to reveal its essence to you and how it works. It's much more like, you know, if you if you read about Goethe's science, it sounds a lot more like shamanism than what we call science. And so his color theory, he figured that out by taking sheets of color and, and just looking at them, and then also looking at the sheet of color when there was light on the other side, and looking at the sheet of color when there was light on this side. And somehow he did all these experiments. They were legitimate experiments, but they only had to do with what you could observe. Uh, now, Newton did something you know, in some ways similar. He was also looking at colors and doing experiments. But he wasn't just looking at them to see sort of, you know, and, and the way Goethe describes the looking, it's, I can't remember his word for it, but it's a very deep seeing. It's, it's hours you spend looking at something. And then, and then something comes to you, like an intuition from the thing itself starts to reveal itself. Uh, Newton, on the other hand, was looking at things, probably also looking at them for hours, who knows, but then he would want to take everything he saw and translate it into mathematical terms. So he would want to take a color and turn it into a wave. And then, and then he could apply mathematics to it. He could say red is a, is a wave of a certain length. And, when you have that, and then you could do the math on a piece of paper. You didn't need colors anymore. You could look at this wavelength and this wavelength and superimpose them, show that it would then result in this wavelength, which was this color. So what, what he did was he took the observed world, created a mathematical model for it, and then didn't have to deal with the real world anymore, could just manipulate the mathematical model. And the idea was that's actually more, that's going to be more accurate over time because you know, it's very platonic in terms of you know, Plato. Mathematics was considered very close to the ideal. 
because you can, you can get uh, very exact in mathematics and observation you can't. So, so Newton would say, hey, this is the way to do science. This is the best kind of science. This is the measurable kind of science. You know, we, we look at things, we find out what we can measure about it, then we forget about looking at the things, and we just deal with our measurements, and we're going to get much better results. And Goethe was saying, no, no, that's not good. That's, that's us separating ourselves from the reality of our experience. We need to go deeper into what we experience and allow the experience to talk to us. And for reasons that have never been fully expressed to me, Newton was the ironclad winner of that uh, public relations debate. And his science was pursued. And Goethe's was literally forgotten about. And I've told this story before. It was forgotten about in, until sometime in the late 1800s. Uh, all of his scientific papers were in a box in some university in Germany somewhere in a basement. No one had looked at them in you know, a half a century. And, and some graduate student was given the job of, it was a graduate student named Rudolf Steiner, was given the job, hey, you know, we've got all these Goethe scientific papers. Will you go in the basement and clean those up and try and put them into some kind of order? And then he got completely fascinated and wrote his uh, doctoral thesis on Goethe's vision of science, um, uh, which I have read and, and is actually quite fascinating. And, and basically, that, his whole kind of spiritual worldview, a big part of it is just rest in Goethe's uh, uh, science. So, that's, so we live in the Newtonian science, the one that's mathematicized. And as that science, as Kripal said, as it, it started its own PR campaign consciously, or no, this is not conscious, not anyone thought to do this, but it just, in, in its solidification of the academy, it basically created a story about the paranormal that there was no basis to it and we shouldn't pay any attention to it. And so when people would come and say, hey, I just saw this happen. Shouldn't we study this? They'd say, no, that's the paranormal stuff. That doesn't deserve to be studied. It's too far on the fringe. It, there's, there's not enough evidence for it. We should just ignore it. And that story is literally carried by all of us in our brains. That's Kripal's point. So when I get to a place where I'm at this you know, book show, and I'm talking to this guy for two hours about his trip from the Pleiades, and at some point I just go, this is too far out. Why am I deciding that? Upon what basis? I have no, I've never been to the Pleiades. If someone told me they came from, like, Malta, and they were describing the ship that brought them, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dismiss, you know, and they got really into exactly, I wouldn't go, oh, that couldn't be true, because that happens within this little middle ground that we decide is OK. But because this is the Pleiades, and, and that's considered um, too far out, then I have that attitude. I really found it in this book, because uh, in Authors of the Impossible, I had another one of those moments. Because the first one, the first person he studies is Frederick Myers, who did the psychical research and all the paranormal stuff. And I'm kind of, like, I'm kind of OK with that. I found that fascinating. The second one is uh, Charles Fort, who, again, it's a lot of this kind of spiritual, paranormal, human capacity kind of stuff. And I, can, I, can, I was totally with that. And then the third person he studied is a French person called Jacques Vallée, which, who is not someone that I know about, a new pri but he's a big expert on UFOs. And I got about a third through that section, and I thought, oh, this guy's cracked. 
with all these. And then I thought, wow, that's really fascinating. How do I know? What makes me the big expert on UFOs that I can determine who's legitimate and who's not? And yet, because of the culture we live in, we all feel justified to make those kind of judgments. And I just think it's worth just sitting with because it is part of the culture that we're in. It is what Jeffrey Kripal is uh, wanting us to, to consider, that we've been told a story that's largely been rooted in the scientific paradigm. And, and you know, it's always tricky to do this without somehow making science the bad guy when it's not, really. The reason why uh, science has solidified is not because it's bad. It's because it was so good. You know, it's kind of like the human species. We were so good at adapting that we took over the whole planet. Science was so good at solving problems that it took over everything. And so it's not really its fault. I mean, it was just trying to do good. Uh, but it was so good that it, uh, it dominated other ways of thinking uh, and made us lose faith in other ways of thinking. And it wasn't, any, wasn't anybody's plan. It just, it was so successful. I mean, look at the, if you just think about the world we live in versus the world of 200 years ago, and, and if you could erase science from that history of 200 years and, and think about where we would be living, you know, the kinds of conditions, we wouldn't have electric lights, that's for sure. We wouldn't be able to really be here having this conversation. We certainly wouldn't have people all over the world on our screen in front of us, right? So, I mean, the thing is, it's just so good. You know, what are we going to do? I mean, you know, who's, who's willing to let go of it? Uh, given its incredible track record. So it's, it's not anybody's fault, and yet it has dominated our thinking. And so here we are. And even us, all of us who put ourselves in the top part of that chart, probably have our limit where we go, no. And the, the, the challenge with that is there's probably a lot of good reason to say no in a lot of instances. But maybe not in every instance. And how are we going to know the difference? How do we know when this is actually someone to listen to? How do we know when it, this is the actual person from the Pleiades and I should be listening? Or this is actually a spiritual teacher who's getting messages from, uh, about a contact that's about to take place? Because I'll tell you, if, if we have some big contact in 20 years, I'm going to be wishing that I had spent more time with that guy, you know, especially if I find out that his community is the only one that's surviving well. Um, and how do we know? You know, and, and that's, I think, part of the question Kripal wants to ask. So I want to have a sit in meditation again for a minute. Because now that I've outlined some of that, where I want to go is because I want to end on the most optimistic possible note by speaking a little bit about William James and Jeffrey Kripal and the worldviews that they hold that might bring us into a very different space with all of this. So right now, we're just going to enter into a little bit of a contemplation. And I want to ask you to see the limits of your own open-mindedness. See the places where you feel justified to stop investigating.
visualize yourself in a kind of spherical cloud of knowing. And the stuff in the center of that cloud is, this, is what you are most certain of, what you have no doubt about. It might be your own existence. It might be your, your immediate experience. things that you feel no need to call into question. And then as you move out, you encounter things that you're less and less certain about. And then you start to encounter things that you're just not certain about, but that you believe anyway. You feel justified to believe in them, even though you don't have direct evidence or proof. And then you start to hit things that you really have no idea about. You don't really know if they're true or not true. You may know that some people believe in them, but you have no reason to believe in them yourself. And at the same time, you don't have any reason to dismiss them. And then at some point, you hit a place that you're just not willing to go beyond. It's a place where you feel justified to dismiss what's there. There's not even enough evidence to warrant investigation. It's the place in my conversation with the man from the Pleiades where I conclude he's crazy. Crazy is a shorthand for there's no reason for me to consider anything else that he says. So the way William James looked at it, that sphere of knowing that we live in with the things we know best at the center and then things that we are less and less certain about and then eventually things that we just believe in even though we're not certain about 
and things we just don't know but are willing to consider. And then that boundary, that edge, we're beyond that, we're not even willing to consider anymore. James's belief was that that sphere of knowing that we live in as individuals and that we live in as a culture is a tiny area in a vast and potentially infinite, unending field of reality. It's like we've been living inside a bubble in the ocean without having any idea how big the ocean is that we live in. So for just a minute, consider this. Consider the possibility that everything we know as individuals, as cultures, even as a species, is a tiny drop in an ocean of possibility. If you knew this, if for some reason tonight it became clear to you that everything you know is limited to a very tiny portion of what's possible, how interested would you be to move beyond everything you know so that you could explore the possibilities beyond. Okay, so open your eyes and just hold that space as I make a few concluding remarks. I'm incredibly taken by Jeffrey Kripal's thinking. And what I find so compelling about it is he talks about how reality works, for humans at least, reality works like a story. We live inside of stories. And the stories that we live inside in the stories that tell us what is true and what is real create the possibilities that we can experience. So we live inside a story, and that story creates a field of possibility that we are then able to experience. So we currently live inside, we live inside many stories, of course, but the one we've been talking about tonight, which is a very dominant story, is the story of the scientific paradigm. And you know, for instance, we right now think of science as a story about the truth, about the way things are. And we could compare that, for instance, to the stories of other cultures, maybe more quote-unquote primitive cultures, and their myths about the way things are. So a myth about the way things are is a story that explains the way things are that's not true. But science is a story about the way things are that is true. 
what doesn't occur to us is that our science may someday look like a myth. They may say, you know, those humans in the, tw- you know, they believe that the Earth started with a Big Bang, and they, you know, and everything that we talk of, they believe that everything was created from subatomic particles, and we have all these stories, and we we collect data that supports the stories, and we believe that those stories are telling us about what's true, but of course. In some other culture at some other time, they had stories, and they had data that supported the stories. It wasn't like they had a story, and all of their experience didn't, didn't back it up, but they believed it anyway. When they looked at the world, they saw their story being enacted, and they said, see, it's true. God did create the world. It's true. The, there is a chariot that drags the sun across the sky. They didn't make that up as just a cute story that really made sense to them. It really felt true. And our science feels true. It feels so true that it's very difficult for us to entertain the possibility that it might someday look untrue. Even though, as Thomas Kuhn points out, and I spoke about, I believe, in one of my lectures here, when he writes about paradigms in terms of science, he likes to go back and share with you the science of 100 years ago that makes no sense at all compared to the science we have today. And yet, we think it's all part of some continuum. Or we create a story that makes... But if you go back to James Clerk Maxwell's explanations for electromagnetism, even though his formulas we still use and they still work, but if you look at his explanations, it doesn't have anything to do with what we currently believe. You know, so what was that? Was that a myth? Because at the time, it didn't seem like a myth. It seemed like it was telling us the truth. So do we think that we got it right now? Or 30 years from now, are we going to look and go, oh, we used to believe that. We were totally off base. So we live in that story. And what, what Kripal wants to say in this book called Authors of the Impossible is that there are people who attempt to, write, to rewrite the story of what reality is. And he has these really interesting, you know, and he's one of these people, of course. You know, this is the interesting thing about this book. He's, he's writing about people who are trying to rewrite the story of reality. And the book he's writing is one of the books that's trying to rewrite the story of reality. Uh, and he's saying, well, the reason, you know, these are not just people who are, at least according, at least how he, his story, these are not people who are just making up a new story. They're actually finding it more like Goethe's science. They're looking at life very closely, and they're seeing something about life. And then they're trying to, to write about it and give it a voice. And William James was one of those. James came up with a different story about reality. It was the story, uh, which I've talked about, I'm sure, before. is a story that we live in a world of pure experience, that there is no solid world. There is no scientific world in, in the way that we've been taught to believe. There's just an experiential world. There's no actual chair here. There's only an experience of a chair. There's no actual book. There's just an experience of a book. Everything is made out of pure experience. And he was really trying to work that, you know, because the power of the story depends on working it and extending it and having it explain things in a way that is convincing enough that we can surrender to it, uh, to surrender to a different story. So that was his story. His story was that we live in in a world made of pure experience. And if you think about it, there's no way to refute it. I mean, because any evidence that you get that, that proves that real things exist, they'll say, well, that's only the experience of evidence. So it's kind of infuriating. 
uh, because there's no way out of it. But that's the way paradigms work. There's always no way out of them. They explain things in such a way that there's no way out. And Kripal would say, even the way that we want to analyze a new story like that. So we want to say, okay, William James has a new story. His story is the story of pure experience. Everything is a pure experience. There are no atoms and molecules. There's just experiences of atoms and molecules. And then people can say, okay, well, let's decide if that's true. You know? So Kreibel would say, even the fact that we're trying to figure out that it's true is already a way of inquiring that's embedded in the current paradigm. He was asked the wrong question. What does true mean? What is true going to mean if you can figure out that it's true? Okay, so you get a room full of people who are going to, what is it going to mean? What, what would constitute proof? Well, what would constitute proof is if somehow this turned out to be the same as what we already know. Then is we true? Ah, it's true because we already know all this and then here's a new idea. Let's keep looking at it in relationship to everything we know until we can find some correlation that fits and then we can say, yes, it's true. <coughs> so Kripal said, well, that's, you know, that way of investigating is already assuming that we know the truth so we can figure out what's true by investigating. He said it's not the right question. The right question is what possibilities get opened up with that story that are not available in the current story? If we were to believe, if we were to adopt this understanding that the world is created of pure experience, what would become possible in the world that's not possible in the current scientific story? And are those possibilities valuable and worth pursuing? That's the question that Kripal would want to ask. How is the range of possibility being affected by the new story? And then, of course, he has a story. Um, he has a story about authors of the impossible, which may include many of you, if not all of you, which is <clears throat> that there are many people who are having mystical and paranormal experiences all the time. And at, at least the people in this room and most of the people listening at home essentially admitted that you already do because... Anybody who would put themselves on the side of the chart that's tending to believe in those things would have to have some experience with them. Otherwise, it wouldn't make much sense unless you really were just going to believe other people's opinions. So they may be small experiences or big experiences, but you've got some. Uh, so Kripal's story is that those mystical, paranormal experiences are not true events, and that's not the right way to look at them. That, that UFOs are not really flying saucers filled with men. They, mean, they might be or they might not be, but there's no reason to assume that they are. What they are is a new possibility and a new story that wants to be written into reality, and it's trying to make itself known. And it's doing it with whatever experiences it thinks it can to get somebody to listen and to write the story. So, he's, so Kripal's story, which is pretty far out uh, from the current paradigm, is that there are beings of, of dimensions greater than the dimensionality of the world that we experience that represent possibilities that could come into this reality. And they want those possibilities to come in. And so they are trying to attract attention of some of us so that we will write them into reality. <clears throat> and so what he's wanting to encourage, he would want to encourage all of us to do, and, and to, to be honest, in many ways, I want to do the same thing, 
is to take those little mystical, paranormal experiences seriously in the sense of seeing them as valuable without taking them seriously in the sense of seeing them as true. Because as soon as you want to nail them down as true, you're, you're kind of nailing them back into the current scientific paradigm where there's truth that can be determined. So don't do that, because then you're playing in the wrong playing field. But instead, recognize that there's something of value there, listen to it, give your attention to it, and then allow it to write itself through you. Now, Kreibel's very particularly interested in writing because that's his path, but I would want to extend that and say, the place where that's going to be expressed is in any aspect of your life. Any aspect of your life that's going to be expanded on by listening to these places where you're hearing more, you're hearing something outside of the current story. You know, that's what I think the message is in, in the paranormal. You know, it's not about are UFOs real? See, that always bothered me. Now I have to prove whether UFOs are real or not. And, you know, and, and Kripal's point is it's, that's not really the relevant question. The relevant question is if we accept the story of UFOs being real, what is that gonna, what, how is that going to affect the possibilities of our world? That's what's more important. What's more important is what's possible. What do these things make possible? Not whether we can put them in the box of, yes, they're finally real, and then we can move on. So that's, that's the story of the paranormal. The, the history of it is secret because uh, it poses a direct challenge to the dominant paradigm, and therefore it doesn't get the airtime that it should. People like Jeffrey Kripal are trying to give voice to it, and, and of course many others are in different ways. I guess I want to leave all of you with the thought that determining whether these things are true or not may not be the most relevant question. William James would say, the experience of them is obviously true, because people are having it. So if we were to adopt James's story of the world, then we would say, well, if the experience is already being had, then it's already real. And, and it's real in the way that makes the most sense, because this is a world of experience. So the idea is don't concern yourself with whether or not they're true. Listen to, the, to these experiences, your own experiences and see if they're trying to tell you something that wants to be expressed. And then ask yourself if you have the courage to express it. Do you have the courage to express something that is subversive of the, dom of the dominant story? Because many of us recognize the dominant story of our culture is lacking and needs to be expanded. But it takes a lot of courage to express something different. You know, the kind of courage that, that, that William James had to some extent based on his, his notoriety and the fact that he was somewhat untouchable. But he held back a lot. That's one of the things he, that scholars will say. He, there's a lot of things he never wrote about. And he was always hedging a bit, even in his most far out writing. And Kripal, same thing. He obviously goes pretty far up, but he's always hedging. He's always, he, by his own admission, he feels a need to hide uh, his real feelings in historical uh, figures. So to what extent do we have the courage to express what we really believe, uh, what we are seeing? 
and maybe that we don't know it's true, but we hear it, and it wants to be told, and it doesn't have a lot of voices to tell it. And, and we don't know how it's going to exchange, extend our possibility range. So that's the story of the, that's the secret history of paranormal experience, and a little bit about William James and Jeffrey Kripal. And thank you very much. <laughs>